Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from DreamWorks Animation Chief Creative Officer for Television, Peter Gall. Warner Media Enterprise Global Access Programs Executive Director, Diana Cadet, and the Black Academy co-founders Shamir Anderson and Stefan James, as part of the Canadian Media Production Association's Primetime Online 2021 event, programmed in association with C21's Content Canada. The Canadian Media Production Association's Primetime Online 2021 event programmed in association with C21's Content Canada, is taking place over the course of this week and next, and in today's show we're featuring some of the highlights from the event so far. First up, DreamWorks Animation's Chief Creative Officer for Television, Peter Gall, spoke with Nico Franks about the rapid expansion of the division under his watch, as well as the increasing demand for animation content since the beginning of the global pandemic. You can watch the full video version of their conversation by visiting the CMPA's Primetime Online 2021 homepage, but here's an extract. My average day is a combination of looking after our production and looking to the future. So we have at any given time around 20 different shows in production out of our studio. So it's overseeing those uh, productions and reviewing materials and looking at cuts and reading scripts and all of that. And it's also working with our development team on all of our future sales, our managing a big development slate, studying the marketplace, talking to all the different buyers out there because we are a producer and we have to sell all of our content. So we are constantly talking to various buyers and partners and managing all those pieces of the creative business. So it's physical production, creative, um, sales, finance, HR, all the different pieces of running a studio that has close to 900 people here in LA. Cool. Yeah. I remember Margie Cohn speaking a few years ago at MIP Junior. Mm -hmm. She mentioned that it was that Netflix deal with DreamWorks Animation Television, that real real landmark deal, that multi-year deal um, that allowed the unit to grow, I think, from something like five employees to, well, at the time it was 800 and now it's 900, which is an immense amount of growth over a relatively short period of time from one deal, which is pretty crazy. And I'm not sure there's anything been anything like it before. I don't think so. I think it is the largest, if not one of the largest TV deals ever in terms of volume. That that original deal was the one we struck in 2013. And I was fortunate enough to be, I was kind of employee number one of DreamWorks Animation Television because I was here embedded in the feature film group when we started developing television shows. And in fact, I was still the only employee of the television division when we sold those thousand episodes to Netflix. So yes, we we started to grow very quickly, hire a, a lot of people. We had, there was no room here on the DreamWorks campus. We had to find our own separate space and it was quite exciting. And uh, now there have been multiple deals since then, both renewals of deals with Netflix, uh, deals with Hulu, deals with Peacock, other partners, um, one-off sales of shows to places like Amazon and Apple. And so we've really expanded since that deal to be where we're at today. And to what extent has Peacock changed things? Because obviously you share a parent company with that streaming service. So is there the intention that over the years you'll move to just producing exclusively a Peacock? Or is the idea to continue to be platform agnostic? Uh, I think the long-term plan is to remain 
remain platform agnostic, maybe not entirely agnostic. Obviously, we want Peacock is kind of in, in its early days, but is incredibly exciting platform that I personally, as a viewer, I think has a lot of innovations that I found it very exciting and useful. It's got channels, it's got trending, it's got elements that remind you of YouTube and other things. So I kind of love Peacock. So I'm hoping we're going to be making more and more. We've launched our first few original series on Peacock, um, Madagascar, A Little Wild, Trollstopia, and um, The Mighty Ones. So we're hoping to keep that going and and we will be producing more content for Peacock. But at the same time, I, I really love the fact that as an independent studio, we are able to sell to so many different buyers. And it what it enables us to do is have a really broad development slate, a lot of different things tonally. And, you know, we know the buyers very well. So we're able to say, you know what, I, this project that we're just starting out on, I bet Tara at Apple would love this project, Tara Sorensen, or something else. I'm like, oh my God, I know that, you know, the buyer at HBO Max is going to fall in love with this because it's it's their taste. So we love being able to do do things for all these different platforms. How has COVID changed things? Bit of the, the elephant in the room. I know you, so you're working from your office, not your home office, but at the studio. So I suppose day to day, you've able to keep a bit of kind of uh, continuity compared to this time last year. Um, I am working from my office. There is almost no one else working on the DreamWorks campus. Uh, the campus accommodates about 2,000 people. I think there's maybe on any given day, 100 to 150 people here. So almost, you know, all of our productions are remote. Obviously, COVID changed a lot. You know, we thought we were leaving campus for two weeks when we left in March, maybe three. It's now, you know, going on a year in, 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 in a few weeks. Um, the reality is, I have to say, I am blown away by our production teams, the way everyone was able to pivot to rem remote work. And really, you know, once we made sure that everybody was safe and their families were safe and everyone was healthy, everyone hit the ground running. And we really haven't had delays. The, the biggest delay is maybe a few weeks on one or two shows. And that's mostly due to our overseas partners and making sure that they're having all the safety precautions and keeping their staff safe as well. But I've been really impressed. Um, things that seemed like they would be really hard in March and April, um, how we were going to record actors, how we were going to record and mix music. Some of those things that seemed like they would be more challenging, our teams figured out. And we, we've not missed a beat. We've kept every show going and we've sold a number of new shows and started them up while we've been in work from home. Amazing. And yeah, obviously that demand has also rocketed. Is that something you've experienced in terms of what the buyers are looking for, I suppose, because your audience has been spending so much more time at home burning through content, basically. So how are the buyers reacting to that by seeking more? Because obviously they could also be challenged budget-wise. I wouldn't say that there's been a dramatic uptick in all of a sudden people want you know, we're a long lead kind of thing in animation. So the shows we start now aren't going to deliver till 2022 or 2023. So I think everyone realizes if they order an animated series now, it's going to be on the other side of the pandemic when live action is back and everything else is vibrant again. So I wouldn't say there's been a huge um, uptick in demand. I think it's been steady. What I do think has had an impact is I think this period has reminded people how important kids and family programming is. As parents have been at home with their kids, whether it's stuck at home or enjoying being home or a combination of both. I think um, whether it's educational preschool stuff for the very youngest end of our audience, all the way up through, you know, kids and teen and family programming. I think people have really realized how important it is, how much they're embracing it. We launched a show like Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous, which is our, you know, one of our biggest launches ever on Netflix during the pandemic. And it became a huge family co-viewing show. So I think families have been 
spending a lot more time together. And so I think there's a renewed focus on this content mattering. In my conversations with various execs at studios, people are yeah amazed how quickly and efficiently studios have been able to pivot to remote working. But obviously the drawback of everyone working independently somewhat is you miss those serendipitous moments of mm-hmm. everyone being in the same room in a studio, noticing someone's work, passing someone in a corridor, yeah. starting a conversation. What have you got in place to kind of try and stimulate those kinds of moments? Well, you know, I think we're doing what a lot of people are doing is trying to find those opportunities for people to connect socially and spend some time together, even if it's virtual, not on work matters. It, it does help to just talk to your coworkers as people and not just be project-based. I think we were very fortunate in that we have our executive team and a lot of our creatives at the studio. We've worked together now for years. We have a lot of people who've been at the studio for quite a while. And in fact, a lot of the relationships were relationships, people that I'd worked with at Nickelodeon or Disney, who we then pulled over here when we started up our studio. So there are people, you know, a lot of us have known each other 15 years. And our, our team's been very stable in terms of that executive and talent. So I think we didn't have as many bumps in the road. I think it's much harder to start up a new show today or bring someone onto a team. And we've seen that. On a, we had a show we were starting up this year with a lot of talent that we hadn't worked with and hadn't worked together before. And we definitely discovered at a few friction points that communication was off. And we had we found we had to spend a lot more time talking about how we communicate and making sure we built in time to share information in a way that isn't as organic as it is around the office, but makes people feel plugged in. And in terms of that hiring process and how that feeds into the eventual content that we see on screen. 2020 was a moment of reckoning for the TV industry in terms of race and recognizing that more needs to be done in terms of diversity, both on screen and off screen. And animation was no different. In terms of where you feel DreamWorks is at in, in that in that conversation, how do you feel things are going and what are you aiming to do in the future? I think it's it's been a really transformative year on the diversity, equity and inclusion topics. I, I think it, it's interesting because I look back on myself a year ago and And I would have said if we were doing this interview then that we were doing really well, that we were regularly thinking about representation, that we were trying to reflect to kids out there a community on screen that's every bit as diverse as the communities they're growing up in. And I think there's some truth to that of the shows we've been working on for two and a half years that have launched this year. Shows like Jurassic World, which has a very diverse cast and a 13-year-old Black lead who is incredibly aspirational, a fantastic character. Character. Um, we have shows like Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts, which has all three human leads are two are black and one is mixed black and Korean. To our most recent launch, Gabby's Dollhouse, which there's one human lead character as a biracial young girl. I, I think we were doing a really good job thinking about on-screen diversity. I think the place where we realize we have not been delivering the same degree is in the behind the screens, the showrunners, the creators. And that's where we're really stepping up our efforts to figure out how to find, empower, support, and mentor that next generation of creators. And, you know, one example that I think is, is interesting on this front, we have a show, Shira and the Princesses of Power. And this is a show where we were incredibly proud. We put in place a 26-year-old 
queer showrunner running her very first show, Noelle Stevenson, one of the most wildly talented writers, creators I've ever worked with. That show had an all-female writer's room. I think all female directors except one. Um, We were incredibly proud of that. That is not something that happens in animation. And this year, I realized looking back on it, that was great, but we had an all-white female writer's room and we had all, I think, white female directors. And so in 2018, we were incredibly proud of that. And maybe even at the top of 2020, we would have been. This year, I'm still proud of that, but I realize that there's so much more to do. Peter Gow from DreamWorks Animation talking with Nico Franks. Remember, the full video version of that interview can be found by visiting the CMPA's Primetime Online 2021. Across Canada today, there are numerous screen-based industry and community initiatives working to recruit, develop and diversify the country's film and television talent pool. Diana Cadet, Warner Media Enterprise Global Access Programme's Executive Director, spoke to City of Toronto Film Commissioner and Director of Entertainment Industries Marguerite Pico as part of a primetime online 2021 session about investing in Canada's creative workforce. Deanna, Warner Media Enterprises, you're doing below the line training from a studio perspective, and I want to understand where you're coming at it from because of that critical difference. How do you see your place kind of in the ecosystem uh, with regard to below the line training? Uh, you know, it's interesting because my background is I started in the union. I was in 667. I was a camera assistant. I was going to say it's a camera gal, but we don't say that anymore. Um, I was a camera assistant. Um, and I draw on that experience personally in this in this job, in this role. Um, from the studio perspective, look, the productions are here. Warner Media has productions here and they got to staff them. And if we want to be attractive to those productions, which are often can be helmed by people from underrepresented groups increasingly who want their productions to look like the world around them, then it's, it's so important for us to be drawing from 100% of the talent pool in Canada. Um, and so when we say diverse, we mean everybody. And we mean it's the, the, the group is diverse. And so that's that's the connection. There's a demand for the talent and it's changed because the decision makers are changing. The demographics of the dis- decision makers are changing and they want those crews to reflect the world around them and the world, like the, the broader world outside around them. So that's a connection. So what we do have is a program called Access to Action and it is a, a PA program. And, you know, we'll be working closely with everybody here here. It's exciting to build that program in concert with everyone in the industry here. So starting out in BC, and it really is to staff directly to staff Warner Media Productions with talent. So that's terrific. And Deanna, I I know that you're aware that Warner exists inside uh, a context here, and you're developing cast and crew that's going to ultimately play in Canadian production as well. So it's a contribution to the ecosystem broadly. I'm sure that's top of mind for you. Do you want to speak about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, you know, we talk about um, world-class crews in Canada. How did we get those world-class class crews? Because we had a lot of, frankly, U.S. productions, big budget U.S. productions that we learned on uh, way, way back, like decades before. And so the important thing is here is, is training Canadian talent below the line and above the line so that they can fulfill their potential on whatever production that they, uh, they're on, whether it's, it's on Warner Media productions or whether it's on Canadian productions, I think the the community can feel, the industry can feel confident that um, candidates who go through all of our programs, we have a suite of programs above the line and below the line, uh, have that kind of Warner Media, I don't want to say stamp of approval, but that backing and 
that support behind them. So there's that that kind of that kind of approval factor. So everybody in this ecosystem can can benefit from the training and from the recognition and from the highlighting of the experienced and newer talents coming through our, our program and across the country. It's an embarrassment of riches, as you said. There's there's so much talent here, and we gotta really just open up and dig into that 100% of the talent that's in Canada. Deanna, I, I I do want you to speak to that point that you wanted to make on retention and also to move into the next piece, which is, you know, the, the below the line piece that we've been talking about so far is about participation, it's about inclusion, it's about employment opportunity, economic opportunity, and creative opportunity. The creative opportunity is particularly pronounced when you're talking about writers and directors and so on, and the voice and the stories we hear and how the stories we hear affect how we see the world and how we feel one, how we experience one another. So I wanted to, um, if we could start by speaking about the retention piece, I know you had a point there you wanted to make, but I'd love to talk about how Warner as, as a studio is locating itself in the business of developing Canadian writers and directors and the contribution you're intending to make to Canadian storytelling. You know, about the retention piece, there's so many great points here. And one of them is like, no, you, you touched on, you said it's not scary. You know what? There's so much work that's being done by large institutions in our industry that we can all learn from. So it's not like you have to start from scratch. I mean, and if you're looking for expertise, it's out there. If you're looking for the failures, which are we learn from failures and all the successes, you know what? Talking to the other partners across the industry to see what has worked and what may has not is a great way to even just get started. So you don't have to start all over again from the bottom, but you can learn from some very big projects and initiatives around inclusion. There's a lot of expertise out there to draw on so it's it doesn't have to be a scary and it's it's quite sophisticated too um in terms of what we're all saying that we all have a role to play like we are all complicit there is something that's very uh, inclusive and welcoming and belonging in terms of going through this uh this process of um you know creating uh, more inclusive workplaces so that's one thing and into the writers program i think one of the things i wanted to emphasize because you mentioned it too about uh, that Well, we were talking about the middle layer and experience. And one of the things we're really proud of with the Writers and Directors Program that we are uh, delivering with the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television in collaboration with Telefilm <laughs> is that it is focused on that mid-tier and, and experienced writers and directors. And the reason why we made that, that very intentional choice is because so much of the discussion is about um, more entry-level and emerging, and that is true, the next generation. But we have, in our country, wonderful a population of people, professionals who've been working for 10, 20, 30, 40 years across it's across all the different crafts at, at, at above the level above the line as well. And part of what we have to do is recognize the the wealth of talent that's been here, has been working, that knows the system, that knows all the legislation and the regulations and how it works in Canada and how to sell internationally. So that's one of the things we want to we, we really wanted to emphasize with the writers and directors program, focusing on mid-career and ex- experienced uh, creators. So um, we I don't know if I'm answering your question there, Marguerite, but the important thing there is that and how our Canadian industry can benefit from the, the access that these writers and directors will get through going through our programs and connecting with Warner Media executives and gaining the expertise that, quite frankly, a lot of writers and a lot of Canadian writers and a lot of Canadian directors get from going down south. But we're hoping that our Canadian writers and directors from underrepresented groups, they are Canadian. They want to create create Canadian stories. They have a Canadian perspective. 
they do not want to leave Canada. I mean, uh, they want to create the stories that they grew up with like, from the perspective of a, as, as Canadians. So the exciting thing about these programs is that it provides the access to the tools, to the expertise, and to Warner Media executives for writers and directors to create what on whatever program, whatever show production, whether it's in the United States or in Canada on Canadian productions. And the industry can benefit from that in such an incredible way. So that's how these programs can connect with our producers here and really elevate and connect their stories, their Canadian stories, with the rest of the world. Diana Cadet from Warner Media Enterprise talking to Marguerite Pigot. Canadian actors and brothers Shamir Anderson and Stephen James recently launched the Black Academy to celebrate and inspire black Canadians in the arts, entertainment and sports. Through a partnership with Insight Productions, they're now working on a live awards show honouring established and emerging black talent. The pair spoke to Refinery29 Unbothered senior editor Kathleen Newman-Bramang. Canadian actors, brothers, Scarborough's own Shamir Anderson and Stefan James recently announced the formation of the Black Academy, the first of its kind designed to celebrate and inspire Black Canadians in the arts, culture, entertainment, and sports. In addition, it has just been announced that the renowned independent production company Insight Productions will produce the Black Academy's first ever award show for TV broadcasts. Congratulations for this amazing news, first of all. We know that you've been pushing for representation and inclusivity uh, with your organization, Black, Building a Legacy and Acting Cinema and Knowledge. And, you know, for people who know, you've been doing the Black Ball and so much other great work. So how did the Black Academy come together and how is it an extension of the work you've already been doing? Well, uh, you know, Shamir and I, this has been a long time coming for us. Uh, you know, we started Black or Non-For-Profit, which is an acronym standing for Building a Legacy and Acting Cinema and Knowledge. And we started that in 2000. 16 because, you know, Shamir and I sort of looked around and realized that there wasn't enough spaces to celebrate and honor and recognize the great work uh, that was coming out of Canada and Toronto specifically. It started sort of regional. And, you know, through that, we ended up partnering with uh, the Toronto International Film Festival uh, to host a party annually um, in conjunction with the festival and became one of the biggest events alongside TIFF. And so we've been so grateful and honored to be able to bring uh, something like that to Toronto. I think that, you know, Shamir and I sort of just looked at ourselves and said, how can we make this more meaningful? How can we make this more impactful? Hence the Black Academy, you know, a, a permanent place to celebrate, to elevate and to honor uh, the achievements of Black Canadians, not only in Toronto, but all across the country. And so we're incredibly, incredibly honored to be able to bring this initiative uh, to the world. Both of you can speak to being young Black actors in the Canadian industry. And as a viewer, as a fan of pop culture, I know that there are gaps in representation and opportunities for Black creators in this country. But I want you to, to break it down for everybody and talk about your personal experiences with the inequality that exists. And Stefan, you can jump in here as well, but we'll start with you, Shamir. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that when you can see it, you can believe it. You know, in so much of, 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 of this time in history that we spent in, in Canada, we realized that we're influenced by our American counterparts, you know, from the Sydney Poitiers of the world, the Denzel Washingtons, the Viola Davis, you know, the Halle Berrys, the list goes on. And I think it's important to really come back home, stay home and understand 
understand what's happening at home. And so for us, it's important to understand that even though my brother Stefan, Golden Globe nominee, Emmy nominated, NAACP nominated, these are great accolades, but he can't be the only one. You know, we need more people that look like us on those big stages. And most importantly, being at home, you know, an incubator to really be trained, groomed and, and developed for success, you know, and understanding that gap coming up for me personally, it was very difficult because I didn't have role models. I didn't have these programs, you know, coming from very humble beginnings, poverty, you know, from a single parent who's an immigrant, we had to improvise and figure out different ways to, to, to tackle and combat this industry that's called film and television, which was very unfamiliar to us. And so in, in short, we got to make sure the people at home, the boys and girls that look like us have a platform, not only a platform, but a platform to excel, succeed and to be celebrated. And there are gaps in Canada. You know, it's never been done before. We've seen multiple award shows and we're so blessed to be working with Insight and uh, Daniel Abrams and Norbert Abrams, our managers, we're also executive producers on this initiative to really build out, you know, an incredible vehicle of Avengers, you know, just like we've seen with the Junos, just like we've seen with other amazing award shows, the MMBAs, the, the list goes on. I think it's important now to, to bring it home for Black people and, and not just only for Black people to enjoy, but for everybody to enjoy. You know, everybody needs to know what's going on in Canada, you know, from PK Subans of the world to the Drake's of the world, to the Andre de Grasse's of the world, to Kathleen's of the world. You know, it's so important to really bring it home and show the world what we're doing and, you know, close that gap. Uh, next year and two years from now, Kathleen, I don't want to be hearing gaps. I want to be hearing normal. You know, this is normal, you know, and, and then that's that's the goal here with Black Academy and now our newly announced, you know, Black Award Show. Stefan, when we talk about, to say this word again, those gaps, I want to go back to this moment at you were accepting this big prestigious award, the Radius Award, and you had a kind of an epiphany that night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, firstly, let me just say what a, what a magical night it was. You know, I got presented the Radius Award, uh, which was sort of just an award to honor, you know, my achievement sort of throughout my career, my short career so far. And, and, you know, my brother Shamir presented me the award. My mother was in attendance. My family was there, my managers. Um, just a magical night for me. And so, you know, I was incredibly honored, uh, you know, by the privilege of stepping on that stage um, and accepting that award. You know, and I say that all because for me, it was a little bit bittersweet. You know, after this night of accepting this award and looking out and seeing my family and, and being honored and renowned by all these Canadians who I respect and grew up watching, you know, I had this a little bit of a moment where I realized, dang, I, I may be one of only a few people who look like me that are going to be able to touch this stage tonight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for some reason, it was just a little bit unsettling. You know, Shamir said that, you know, to, to be it, you got to you got to see it. Right. And so for me, um, you know, that seeing it was my my 12 and 13 year old self going down to Wexford Collegiate School of the Arts to watch my brother perform on stage uh, in his theater productions. And, and you know, that sort of breeded an inspiration in me um, that helped me, you know, create the, the career that I have built so far. And so, you know, I think that you know, when you go backstage and, and Shamir and I look each other in the face and say, you know, what do we do? How do we be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves? You know, that's really where the impetus of this show began. It's, it's, it's you know, Stefan James isn't the only one. There's so many more of me. We're not short of talent. We're just short of opportunity and recognition. And so it was important for us to be able to create this platform, as Shamir says, uh, to be able to give people their flowers while they're here. You know, give them their Say it again. Say it again, Stefan. Give people what? Say it again. People their flowers while they're here. You know what I mean? We don't, we don't have to go south of the border. We don't have to go to L.A. to get love. 
we can get love right in our hometown in Toronto and Scarborough, you know, speaking of me and Shamir. And, and, you know, that can mean something. That'll mean something to the rest of the world as well. Um, you know, if we support our homegrown talent and show people why we're the best. And so we truly, truly believe that it's not just something we say uh, for show. We truly believe we're the best. And, and if we can be responsible in inspiring that next generation and helping them become the next Stephon James and the next Shamir Anderson, you know, that that'll be the ultimate, I think, mark of success for us. We've, we've already spoken a bit to um, giving people flowers while they're here and why something like this is important. But, you know, I'm thinking of the award shows that we know south of the border and how getting those awards leads to more opportunities. It leads to more visibility. So just speak a little bit more to why celebrating creative of color in this way is important and what it could mean for their future. It's good for the economy. You know, it's good for the economy because, you know, we're giving opportunities for individuals who don't usually have opportunities in these spaces in front and behind the camera in the Anglophone community and the Francophone community across Canada. You know, you got people all the way from Halifax, Nova Scotia, down to the islands in BC. I mean, it's important to know that this is good for Canada because it creates and it stimulates the economy, especially during the, the global pandemic to come back into something like this. We've now created literally a platform to generate money, you know, which is an important part of this show. And, and to talk about funding real quick, you know, I want to do once again, shout out CMF, who've been our, you know, our first round of investors, you know, and they, they really believed in this from the beginning and we're grateful for their contribution, you know, but also we want to make a call to action to, to corporations, you know, government bodies and individuals to step up and support this. You know, we are a not-for-profit entity. Fundraising has been a very difficult part of this whole initiative. You know, if I can put it plainly, oh, I've, I've been hearing things and learning things so quickly. You know, I say it unapologetic. You know, I'm from Scarborough. I am not a fundraiser expert. I am not a not-for-profit person. You know, these are roles that I've taken on, you know, as a, as a vessel for change. But that being said, I'm understanding and learning what envelopes are, what making sure we fit in certain boxes are, you know, speaking to the ministers of every department and offices and deputies and heritages. I mean, I could probably politician in two years. But, you know, that being said, you know, it's been a difficult time. And we I think it's important to, to understand that even though there's no envelopes for these things, we got to think outside the box. I'm just thinking outside about the box, create new boxes for things like this. You know, it's unfortunate that we've been getting a lot of, oh, we don't support these types of things. It's not really a part of this mandate or it has to be, you know, about anti-racism and everything, racism and racism. And it's just like, let's just celebrate. Let's just have a moment here and talk about there's your award show aspect, but the Black Academy also has programs. You know, we have things like the writer circles in short, where we're going to give an opportunity to, you know, select few writers across Canada to develop their work in an eight week course. But most importantly, given the first opportunity to a first look deal to an American production company. Company. You know, that's going to be backed by Stefan and I, you know, also the monologue slam that we started with the TDSB, where we give young people between the ages of 13 and 19, the opportunity to be on stage to do slam poetry, get scholarships, visibility on television, looking at different sports initiatives. I mean, there's so much programming and I just gave you three off the top that we need to really create these new envelopes and these government bodies need to break down these respectfully old guard tendencies to, to and, and these old guard criterias and, and, and really shatter this because the tectonic plates are shifting in the Canadian entertainment industry and we're the conduit of that and we're not going anywhere. And I'm really looking forward to, to attracting the best talent, the best producers, the best partners, but also our government, you know? So Trudeau, if you're watching, we'd love to sit down. <laughs> so talk about uh, beyond the award show, what the, the 
Black Academy has planned. Board show is this beautiful celebration, but it's like the glitzy, glamorous part of it. What what else is in store? Yeah, you know, we have the award show component, and I think building up to that, it's really just changing the landscape of this industry. You know, not just on, like you said, the glam and glitz part from the award show, which is an important component, but also the programs leading up to that, you know, from summits to conferences to mentorship programs, you know, on the ground. I know we hear that so often and we hear when we associate Black organizations, it's mentorship, this and that, but no, it's it's really creating these relationships and these literally the accelerator programs that we see, you know, in, in the entrepreneurial financial sector is the same thing we're applying here, you know, in the arts. And I think it's important to stress that these are things that are being built out and these are things that are going to be long lasting, that are going to have, you know, actionable change, tangible change. It's not just going to be something where, you know, we're getting a grant for this amount of time and then it's gone. You know, there's going to be permanence here. There's going to be sustainability here. You know, we're really trying to battle systemic racism. And by doing that, it needs to it needs to be an everyday conversation. And like I said, I said earlier in another conversation that the same way how we see Tim Hortons on every corner, I'm hoping to see, you know, real organizations like this on every corner across Canada, you know, or some sort of idea of that. You know, I think it's important. This needs to become our norm. You know, this has to become regular. It can't just be a black square or a hashtag. To, to, to piggyback on that, you know, look at, you know, Shemir's totally right. We, we want to see these on every corner. You know, we want to see more of these initiatives and we want to be that conduit to, to change. These are important. Again, it's something that's bigger than Shemir and myself. You know, it's easy to just chill in L.A. and act like nothing's happening over there and just live your life and have your career. But, you know, what Shemir's saying, we talks about having these buildings on every corner is we don't want to be knocking on other people's doors anymore. We're creating our own doors. We're creating our own infrastructure. We're giving folks the tools to be able to be sufficient and sustainable on their own. And I think that's the most important thing about what we're trying to do. Shamir Anderson and Stefan James, speaking with Kathleen Newman-Bramang. Remember, the full video version of that interview can be watched by visiting CMPA's Primetime Online 2021, programmed in association with C21's Content Canada. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.